Greetings. Welcome to Witnesses of the King, another presentation of your friends here at White's Run Baptist Church. I'm excited to speak to you today about the events in Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, we're taking up the action of the church really full out going to the Gentiles, and we see uh, the servant Paul being called here into action with his friend Barnabas and their helper John Mark. And as you remember, way back in the beginning of the book of Acts, as we studied chapter 1, we saw that they were commanded by Jesus to wait in Jerusalem for the power and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then he declared, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses. And then he gives an outline of what essentially ends up being an outline of the book of Acts in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And they waited and it came. The Holy Spirit came. They had a great ministry at Pentecost. Thousands of people came to believe at the day of Pentecost and shortly thereafter. And many of those people traveled, traveled back to their lands. But by and large, most of the action then happened in Jerusalem. Um, and, but many of those people took the good news back to their lands. The gospel began to spread, however, from Jerusalem, aided by the persecution that it began to go out into Samaria and Judea, uh, and at first officially only to the Jews, and then also included the God-fearers, that is the Gentiles who uh, believed in the God of the Bible, the God of Judaism. But then it really became wholesale in Acts chapter 10. Uh, with the vision of Peter, with his going and preaching in the house of a Gentile, some of these God-fearers, that now the gospel was going to the Gentiles. What we're going to see in Acts uh, 13 is a continuation, really, of the story of the church in Antioch from chapter 11. We met the church of Antioch there, and we also saw that Barnabas and Saul, who we had met previously in the book of Acts, were ministering therein the church at Antioch. We also saw greater persecution in Acts chapter 12 happening in Jerusalem with the death of James and the imprisonment of Peter. But now the action turns back to Antioch and today what we're going to see is we're going to see how the Holy Spirit sends missionaries. And here will be an outline for you today uh, in the form of a statement, just a very basic statement about what we're doing. The Lord sends his people from healthy churches to preach the truth and to face the enemy in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's going to be our outline today. That's what we're going to see as we read in chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. So see if you can uh, pick up these themes as we go along. Sent, by health, or sent from healthy churches to preach the truth, to face the enemy in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, let's take a look at the Word of God and read this together. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole land as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul 
Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul from away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Well, let's begin then with a word of prayer. Father God, we pray today that in this reading and this exposition of the scripture, that you will work mightily to motivate in us all those affections, Lord, that will be most beneficial to your kingdom, most glorifying to you, and indeed bring the most joy to many people as they hear the good news. I pray you use this today to equip us and to motivate us for the spread of the gospel. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can see there, our hope is that we would get from this a real uh, good understanding of how it is God is working and be sufficiently motivated to join him in that work. Well, let's take a look at uh, several things here. First of all, we saw our summary here. And the first part of our statement is that he sends people from a healthy church, from a healthy church. When we were introduced to the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 11, we see that that's where people were first called Christians. They were preaching. They were turning from their sins to the Lord. They were encouraging one another. They were teaching and they were giving. Now we come here to Acts chapter 13, we find out more about them. We find out that they were a very diverse group. The prophets uh, list among them one who was nicknamed Niger, which in Latin means black. So this was likely an African person. Lucius of Cyrene was from the north coast, Libya. That's where Cyrene was. Menaean grew up with Herod the Tetrarch. So this was a person of probably a very wealthy or influential household. And so we see great diversity of people. Plus you have Barnabas and, and Saul in the mix there who have their own differences from one another and from these that we see. And so the scripture presents here a very diverse group of people. And it's very important for us to see that this was the church from the beginning. And this is what happens in the church of Jesus Christ, is that people from all nations, tribes, tongues, languages are brought together in, to form a new people, a distinct people, a new nation, a nation that was not a nation at one time, and that is the church of Jesus Christ. So what we see here in 13, in addition to being very diverse, uh, we notice that very importantly, they had prophets and teachers. There were prophets and teachers there. So this was a genuine church because we're told that God gives to the church prophets and teachers and other things to equip the people for the work of the ministry. Both of these ministries that are mentioned here are ministries of the word of God. And what you'll find in a true church is a very strong ministry of the word of God. But a ministry of the word of God will not be alone. 
And the reason I say this is because we can become a biblical scholar, we can become an expert on the Word of God, and still not meet that with faith, and still not be followers or worshipers of God. And of course, the worldly examples we have is many of the foremost experts in biblical archaeology, or even in the manuscripts of the New Testament and other such matters, are unbelievers and professed unbelievers. But they are experts in their field, and indeed God uses them to our benefit. But nevertheless, it takes more than an academic understanding. Uh, It has to be met with faith, or else it will be a fruitless endeavor for someone to claim to be Christian by only knowing the Word of God. So what accompanies it here? Well, we see that not only were there prophets and teachers, but these people were worshiping together. And the word here used in Acts 13 for worshiping or translated as worshiping is literally just serving. But more particularly, this word would be used of someone who served in office for the public good at their own expense. We find it being used that way sometimes in the ancient world. The noun form of this word that occurs here as a verb is simply an offering. So this has an idea of both worshiping and serving him. Now, when we, this word, we see this used of serving one another, it often has the idea of meeting one another's very real and physical needs. So the question I have for you is this, do you realize that among, uh, that, that among God's people, it is proper and fitting first and foremost that we would worship? Probably chief among all that we do for God would be worship. It is for this very purpose that he called us. And sincere worship is profoundly enjoyable. If you're not enjoying your worship, you're not sincerely worshiping. Now, sometimes it does begin as work, but once we enter in and once we we experience the presence of God, then, then it becomes the most enjoyable thing that we can do as people of God. And so what we have here are people worshiping, people enjoying their worship together. And when we talk about worship like that, it's in great contrast to the treadmill Christianity that many people have and many people practice. So when we focus on do this act or do that act, don't do this and especially don't do that, then we're having a Christianity that's something less than what it can be. There has to be worship. There has to be true worship. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 4, verse 23 here. He says, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. So what is worship? Well, Worship does include all the ministry of the word, the teaching, the reading, the memorizing of scripture, meditating upon scripture, uh, all the prayers that we lift up, whether it's thanksgiving or praise or prayers of intercession for another or prayers of asking for things for ourselves. All these are forms of worship. And in Acts 13, they connect one more to this and right alongside the worshiping and the prophets and the teachers here, They were fasting. And indeed, this is a form of worship. But very often, fasting is singled out as being special, as being, this is when they're getting really serious about their worship. They're actually 
giving something up in order to devote more time, more energy, more focus upon the Lord. The act of fasting, which fasting is just simply giving something up and replacing the time and the energy and the desire for that thing with prayer and meditation on God's word or serving the Lord in some other way. It's a physical form of denying oneself, of taking the physical, disciplining the body and using it to create a spiritual change in us and a spiritual condition, which is very receptive then to God. And so when our physical needs are not met, met, we tend to go after the spiritual needs. And indeed, that is what happens when we fast. Fasting was assumed by Jesus. It was modeled by Jesus. There's no command to fast in the New Testament, but there are instructions on how to do it properly. So it must be something that would be beneficial for us. When we read the Gospels, we meet Anna at the temple who was fasting and met the infant Jesus. We saw John, the disciples of John the Baptist were fasting to work that ministry effectively. We found Jesus himself, like in the temptation, was fasting. We find that the apostles were spoken to by Jesus about fasting, and here we find them fasting in the book of Acts. But this is also an Old Testament practice, and it was connected to repentance and worship, especially the festival worships or special times of coming before the Lord or seeking him for some purpose. So this is the kind of church from which God sends missionaries. And this is important. Now, God can send missionaries from any church, and very often missionaries do come out of even the most dysfunctional situations. God can use any congregation, but when a, when a church has the worship right and the word of God right, they become missionary sending factories. And this is powerfully important truth for us to understand. They were sent from a healthy church, and they were sent to preach the truth. Um, here's what we say about a healthy church. Uh, Oswald J. Smith said this. He said, the light that shines the farthest will shine the brightest at home. A very good thing to understand about healthy churches sending people for the work of God. Well, they were sent to preach the truth. And the first thing we need to recognize is this truth from the Bible. The spoken person to person, that is personal proclamation of the gospel is God's chosen method for his people to reconcile the world to himself. In the book of Romans, we see this active as Paul has in mind here. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have? have not believed and how are they going to believe in him of whom they've never heard and how are they going to hear without someone preaching this should remind us of earlier in the book of acts when uh, philip was taken down along a man from ethiopia who was reading from a scroll of isaiah and he's reading from it and he's not really understanding what he's doing and philip comes alongside do you need help with that do you understand it and a man says how can i understand it unless someone explains it to me it has been God's will to have that exact thing happen. Here this man had the scroll of Isaiah in, the, in hand. There is no better place for the Holy Spirit to teach him about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ than right there. But what does he do? 
he sends one of his apostles down there to teach this man directly. This is how God has chosen to do it. And this is in God's wisdom, and this is in contrast to the way the world would be impressed by it. The world would expect us to go out and do, all of us do mighty miracles all the time to show that we're from God and then just tell people what to do. Or it would have us do some kind of a massive ad campaign, some kind of a big fundraiser, some kind of a massive uh you know, entertainment thing coupled with these. And very often the churches from time to time tried many of those kind of things to varying success. Generally what happens is you end up having to follow it with personal contact anyway. Look how Paul describes this in contrast to the world, the wisdom of God, to use the proclamation of the word to bring the gospel. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It's God's will to do this through the folly of the preached word, the proclaimed word, to person to person, throughout all of history. This is how God saves people. And God commands us to go. This is his salvation program. No one will be saved if no one goes. It's really that simple. Now, some may object and read Acts chapter 9 and say, yeah, but look how God saved Saul. God intervened radically in his life, literally interrupted him committing sin by going to Damascus and and to persecute Christians. And so God just interrupts. God just shows up on the road, Jesus does, and and just knocks him blind. And they say, well, why, why doesn't God just do that with everyone? Well, if you pay attention, read the rest of that story, God delivers Saul blind to the city, but then sends him a Christian brother, Ananias, to tell him the truth, to explain to him what is going on. It's how God does it. Others may object and say, look, God already knows who he's going to save and who he's not going to save, so why do I even bother? Well, very simply this, Jesus said this, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And Jesus told his disciples, what are those commandments? Well, one of them is, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. See, it is for this purpose that he has brought us to him. Look what he says in John 15, 16. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, he says to the eleven disciples. And so it was for the purpose of bearing fruit, which in the context we understand is more believers. So, you know, even if God knows who he will save and who he will not, that doesn't change our mission. That doesn't change our duty. That you have to ask yourself, are you refusing to go? Are you refusing to make disciples? Are you refusing to bear fruit? And if you are, what makes you think that you are his disciple? For his disciples love him, and his disciples obey his commands. In Christ, his commands actually become our desires. And by obeying his commands, we abide in him. We have fellowship with him. The single greatest joy for a disciple is to be involved in the work of spreading the gospel. And the single most effective cure for a struggling church, for a stagnant church, is to embrace the mission that they were made for. 
Jesus defines eternal life in terms of knowing him and knowing the Father. And there's no better way to know a person than to walk a mile in their shoes, to teach as Jesus did, to call people to repentance as Jesus did, to pronounce woe on the enemies of God as Jesus did when it's necessary, and to declare the hope of true worship and eternal life just as Jesus did. And Jesus met people with compassion. He was moved by this compassion. Look in Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Wow, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looked at them this way. So what does he do? Well, the very next thing that happens in this scripture is that he sends the disciples out to preach the good news. How does he meet this concern? How does he uh, make it so that he can uh, address this compassion, fulfill this compassion? What does he do? He called his 12 disciples together. He gave them authority over unclean spirits and he sent them out and he sent them out to teach. Powerfully important truths. Now, hypothetically, you know, if God were slightly different than he really is, God wouldn't need us to do this work. The truth is, he chooses us to do this work so that we can experience him more fully, so that we can have joy. Listen to this description of Jesus after Hebrews chapter 11, in which uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is an accounting of many of the faithful of the Old Testament and how they showed their faith by their actions. And so it's defining faith as having some kind of a physical consequence. Faith has some kind of a thing that it causes people to do. It expresses itself through the action of the faithful. And it gives us the last example of that. It brings forward Jesus. Look, consider Jesus and look at verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne. What was the joy that came after the cross? Well, the joy that came after the cross was the salvation of his people and the coming together of the church, a people separated unto God to reflect his glory, to share in his purposes on the earth. This is the joy set before Jesus. And how do we best share in that joy with him? We join him in that redemption work. In Acts 13.5, we see that they proclaim the word of God in the synagogues on Cyprus. Then in Acts chapter 13, verse 7, what is it that Sergius Paulus is interested in? It says, he summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. And in verse 12, we see that it is the word of God that brought the astonishment, not the sign. The sign helped convince him of things, but it's ultimately the word of God that caused his astonishment, if we look at that close. So, so the desire of the proconsul was not only to hear the word of God, but then his, his object of astonishment was the teaching of the Lord. This is all about the word of God. The Lord sends people from his healthy churches to go and proclaim the truth. And this is a great encouragement because notice that it was the desire of the proconsul to hear the word of God. 
Well, that means that God is already at work. Something had happened to pique his curiosity. He heard something about the Christian message, or he heard something about Jesus, or something going on over there in Jerusalem, you know, that's really stirring things up over there. It's got the king all upset. He has a desire to hear the word, and therefore we know God's already at work. How do we know that God's at work, and he's just not a curious fellow? Because it says this in the book of Romans, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God of our own accord before God intervening in our lives. We do not, because of our our fallen and sinful and selfish nature, we don't look for God until he calls. Listen to what Jesus says in John six forty four. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And the ones that are drawn to him, he raises up in the last day. So here, Sergius Paulus has suddenly this desire to hear the word. And this is what you'll find when you go out to share the gospel with people, when you turn to your neighbor or your friends or your relatives and you ask them about Jesus Christ, you're going to find two kinds of people. You're going to find those who God is already working with, like the proconsul here, Sergius Paulus. And you're going to find those like Elimus, who is just looking for an outlet, an excuse. They want to find maybe a hole in the gospel. They want to find some reason to turn away or to ridicule the gospel rather than properly respond to it. Now, the proconsul is obviously the former kind of person that is actually being worked on by God and being drawn to God. And so he wants to hear the truth. And we see the result is that he believes. And his astonishment was at not at this satisfying miracle, but this endorsement to the message, it was the word of God itself. What an encouragement to find right here that this man was ready to hear the word of God. And this is such an important principle to understand in taking the gospel to the world is that you will have to face the world And some of those people are going to respond positively, but some are going to be an enemy. So sometimes we're sent out and we must face the enemy, as Paul does here. The first thing we need to understand is that there's no neutrality in the world. And as we look at the Bible, biblical scholars and biblical students, as they study the Bible through the years, we basically identified three enemies of the Christian. The world, the flesh, and the devil is how they're usually listed. And the world, of course, refers to the non-believers and their systems and, and their governments and things like that. The flesh, of course, refers to our own problems, our inward sin problems, our own desires that conflict with the desires of God and things like that. That's not our topic today. But then there's also the devil. And I'm going to argue to you that I believe the world and the devil are essentially the same enemy because the world is in the power of the evil one. Look what it says here in 1 John 5.19. John says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Uh, In the power of the evil one, the whole world does. He is called the prince of this world. He is called the God of this world. Jesus calls him the ruler of this world. And so these are important truths for us to understand. 
There, therefore, is no neutrality in the world. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark 9.40 here. He says, For the one who is not against us is for us. Jesus clearly, logically puts forth that there are two types of people in the world. Those who are for him, those who are against him. This is further reiterated in Ephesians chapter 2 when it describes the condition we were in before God saved us. It says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Okay, dead's pretty bad, but what were we doing? Because we were still in motion, okay? We may have been spiritually dead, but we're still walking around. Well, in that case, we're following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, which is another word for Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So what we're doing, we're following our own desires by which we're being led around by the world and really by the prince of the power of the air. And so Ephesians chapter 2 makes a pretty strong case there are no neutral parties. If we're not in Christ, we are of the world. And if we are of the world, we're following the evil one through his schemes and everything else in the world. So he was there in the beginning with Adam and Eve. And he is described by Jesus as one who has come to steal and kill and destroy. His strategy has always been the same. He brings doubt about words, God's word. He says that to Eve at the beginning, did God really say? Now, he's been there all along resisting Israel, trying to prevent the coming of Jesus. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 12. He was there to tempt Jesus in the wilderness in Luke chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4. He asked to sift the disciples in Luke chapter 22. This is when Jesus warned Peter. And he said, but I've prayed for you. In other words, Satan asked to sift the disciples. He tempted the disciples. And indeed, when Jesus was arrested, they scattered. And here he is found in the book of Acts, resisting the spread of the gospel. And, and Peter calls it out just like it is. He says to this man, you son of the devil. This is how he begins his, his address to him. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. And so the devil's actively resisting this. And Limus himself, he's called a false prophet. He's called a magician. He's called a son of the devil, and he's also a Jew, which is interesting that he's a magician because these things were illegal in the Jewish code of law, even punishable by death. Probably explains why he wasn't in Jerusalem, but nevertheless, this is a wicked, wicked man. He despises the law of the Jews, and he despises the work of God as he shows himself here, trying to prevent Sergius Paulus from hearing the truth. Why would you ever prevent someone from merely hearing information? Do you not believe that that person has the discernment to decide for themselves? No, this is exactly why the gospel is always attacked with censorship to try to shut it down, to try to silence it. But we don't silence any other voices that are out there. We don't silence any other worldly philosophies that have resulted in nothing but woe and world war and famine and persecution throughout the ages. And so Paul, filled with this spirit, pronounces this curse upon him. And this is the really amazing part of the scripture is what Paul says. But the most amazing part, I'm going to highlight it for you here, is right at the beginning of this, but Saul, who was called Paul, so now from now on the book of Acts, we'll call him Paul. 
okay? He looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? This is a really strong statement. And and this is something that maybe grinds against the way we do things today because we're all about being nice today. We're all about, oh, just win them with love, just love on people. But here he is. He sees what this man is like. He sees this man opposing the work of the gospel, and he calls him out on it. And he calls him out with very strong words. Not only that, he calls a curse down on him. Look what he says here. Now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. Now, let me let me explain something to you that the Bible makes crystal clear. God is not some neutral force to be manipulated. God has a will, and his will is done. And so we can't just decide one day, hey, make this guy blind, you know, because he ticks me off. That doesn't work that way. If Paul calls upon this man to be blind, it's because God wanted him to be blind. And look what he says. You know, the the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. It's miserable what God has done to this man. And so this is a really powerful thing. And this is done, I'll remind you, what did we highlight? This is done by the power of the Spirit. And that brings us to the next point in what we're talking about here. We're doing this all by the power of the Spirit. And so we see that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that Paul is not only proclaiming, Paul calls down this curse on this man. I want to take you for a moment to Zechariah 5.6. Yeah, we're going to go into the Old Testament on this one. In the book of Zechariah, what's happening is the, the Israelites have come back from exile. They were exiled out of their land for disobedience to the Lord. It's all described there in the, uh, at the, near the end of Kings and Chronicles, and why God took them out, where he took them, and everything else. But nevertheless, here's the deal. The Babylonians had destroyed their temple which is true exile from God, if you understand the temple was the presence of God among them. Well, when they come back into the land, God tells them, okay, now it's time to rebuild the temple. You've done your time outside the land. Now I want you to begin to reestablish things. I want you to rebuild the temple. And the man who had the task of this was Zerubbabel. And in the, the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, part of these prophets' job was to encourage Zerubbabel and the others because they were facing opposition to their work. They needed the word from God through Haggai and Zechariah to encourage them to continue the work. And listen to what Zechariah says, uh, what God says through Zechariah to Zerubbabel. He says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so, He's telling him, you know, who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace to it. In the New Testament, the top stone, the chief stone, the capstone, the cornerstone are all terms used to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus did come to the temple. 
But there's something more to this. As you read Zechariah, you get the distinct impression that he is speaking about more than the physical temple that was being rebuilt with stones in the city of Jerusalem. He is speaking about none other than the ultimate temple of the Lord, the church, believers in Jesus Christ, not the church buildings, the people. And in the New Testament, we're referred to as a building being fitted together. And in New Testament, the church is called the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, where two or more of you are gathered, there I am in the midst of you. In other words, he's going to dwell with his people, just like the temple was in the center of Jerusalem, or not the center of Jerusalem, but was the primary feature of Jerusalem. Going back further to the tabernacle, the presence of God was always in the very middle of the camp. Jesus, using the same kind of language, say, look, where you're gathered, that's where I am, right there among you. And Paul even says this about believers, you are a temple for the Holy Spirit, speaking of us individually, that indeed the Holy Spirit indwells believers in their hearts. And as Jesus himself is among believers when we come together. And so this is speaking of more than this. And how is it accomplished? It's not accomplished by might of men. It's not accomplished by power of men. It's accomplished by the Spirit of God. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit that the church is built through the work of God's people. Well, this is incredibly encouraging to say the least. But some of the things we want to look at as we review here I'll remind you that our summary was this. The Lord sends his people from healthy churches to preach the truth and to face the enemy in the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, my encouragements to you are, are this. First, a question. Are you, do you worship and serve the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you come to worship him today? Or when you come to him and when you gather with church folk or you pull up a sermon to, to watch, are you here just trying to get something? Or are you here to worship the Lord? Did you come to serve or to be served? Now, yes, in the Lord, we are served and we are served greatly. And yes, you ought to come to Jesus for your needs. You ought to come to the Lord with your needs. But the true worshipers of God, they come to him just to worship him. And the other things follow. And so what we want to do is we want to turn our focus Godward to enjoy him. So the first question is, do you worship and serve the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, have you repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation? The work that Jesus Christ did on the cross was to take the wrath of God that was due to us for our sins, and he took it upon himself. But because he lived a perfect life, he was the perfect son of God, death couldn't hold him. He rose again, and he offers eternal life to all those who would repent of their sins and trust in him for salvation. Do you trust in Jesus Christ for salvation? Do you understand the power of the Holy Spirit is what will accomplish salvation? You need only to trust in Jesus Christ and to turn from your sins. Worship and serve the Lord Jesus Christ is my first encouragement to you. My next encouragement to you would be this. Go therefore, 
to preach and to face the enemy in the power of the Holy Spirit. All we need to do this is the desire to do it. Because it's done in the power of the Holy Spirit. All that's necessary is the desire. All that's necessary is the will to do it. Now the question then, of course, is obvious. What causes the will? I mean, how do we shape our will to desire it? What if we don't desire it? What if we're afraid to do it? What if uh, we just have better things to do? Okay, like watch another season of random show on the, on the telly. Well, we shape our desires by communing with God. Yeah, back to the worship thing again. Commune with him in prayer and in his word and in the people of God. And it begins to shape our desires. It begins to change us. The Holy Spirit does a work on us on the inside and it eventually works itself out. And our desires then become the desires of the Lord. Remember in John chapter 4, the disciples had run off to fetch something to eat. Jesus stayed there at the well of Jacob. And a woman came to him, a woman of Samaria came to him. And they had a conversation. It changed her life and changed the life of many people from that city. Because Jesus gave up the search for food in order to stay there. This is a form of fasting. The disciples come back and they say, you know, and, and Jesus seems okay. And here all these people come out of the city and he's like, hey, look at this. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray for the Lord of the harvest. And they're asking each other, oh, did he find something else to eat? And it's talking about the harvest. What'd you do? Go pick some grain, Jesus, or something? What's the deal here? And they didn't understand. But Jesus sums it up like this. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. The greatest desire that Jesus had was to do the will of the Father. Do you realize how freeing that is? How we no longer will have conflict if we can but desire what God desires, knowing that God that the prayer is answered, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that we can have that desire fulfilled and fulfilled abundantly, if it will be but our desire. So make his desires your desires. Worship him. Uh, read the word of God. Meditate upon it. Join with other Christians in a Bible study. Whatever you need to do to further mold your desires to his. Because this is what the world needs. Is salvation in Jesus Christ before every other possible remedy or reform is this one thing. So go therefore and preach. And then finally, and related to that, is be ready at all times for the work of the ministry. Understand that this is about knowing God. And when we labor alongside him in ministry and in the ministry of the word of God, we are abiding in him. This is what Jesus did. And this is what Jesus is still doing. It's why we're called his body. You want to know God more? Do you want to experience his presence? Do you want more of the peace that the gospel offers? Do you want more of that joy, the kind of joy that can't be affected by your circumstances? It's the kind of thing that has not influence from this world. It is only from God. Do you want some of that? Then abide in him by doing his will and following him in his work. Be ready at all times for the work of the ministry of God. And indeed, these things will be added to you. He promises that. 
So he includes you in his work and he calls you to the front lines to proclaim the word and to face the enemy. Let's pray. Father God, we're amazed and we owe all to you because this is your work accomplished according to your will in the power of your spirit. So this day, our earnest prayer is to be aligned with your will, align our churches with your will, align each of us with one another, join us in unity and draw us together and give us great dedication to this by sowing in our heart this great compassion that Jesus had for people. Sow in our heart this great desire to see God glorified by not only his the proclamation of his truth, but the conversion of people and the saving of masses. For every believer in Jesus Christ represents someone moved from death to life. Lord, I pray you write that great truth on our hearts and you help us to fulfill it to your glory this day. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. I hope you enjoyed this time together. There are many other sermons here on the book of Acts, and there's going to be a couple more to come that I didn't get released in previous weeks. You'll see those come out shortly in the next few days. So I hope this finds you well and continue to search the scriptures so that you may prove what is true about God. So finally, if you're uh, if you're in need of anything at all, uh, write us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. You can find out more about us at whitesrun.org. I answer these emails personally, and I would be very interested in your feedback and your input, even your criticisms, and and most importantly, in your questions. Uh, If there's anything else, if we can help you find a church in your area, please let me know. We can help you do that. God bless you.